attractions to the same sex, unprocessed childhood trauma, porn addiction. Our marriage seemed doomed. If marriage is primarily about attraction, it was. If marriage is a gospel picture, it absolutely wasn't. An impossible marriage, what our mixed orientation marriage has taught us about love in the gospel, a book endorsed by Matt and Lauren Chandler, Ann Voskamp, Gabe Lyons, and Marvin Williams is now available. Find it at impossiblemarriage.com. Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 147, Caring for People Wrestling with Gender. Hello, welcome. I'm your host, Lori Krieg, and I am with my favorite licensed therapist, which there's another licensed ther- psychologist in the room, uh, but not also an Argyle expert, who, and also not my husband in the room. Just one of them, Matt Krieg. I don't, hi. I don't know if any of that made sense. I'm just saying there's two therapists in the room today, but there's only one favorite and one Argyle expert and one husband. Uh, but we do have the most and only professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. And our guest today, which who is that? That's Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Mark, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. We're so glad to have you. Guys, if you do not know him, you got to get to know him. He is the Dr. Arthur Reck and Mrs. Jean May Reck, professor of psychology at Wheaton College, which you know Wheaton. It's the Harvard of Christian colleges, so that's where you want to go. But that is where he directs the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. What up? I want to hear more about that. But he's the co-author of a bunch of books, including the one we're going to be talking about today, Emerging Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth. That sounds very relevant to today. And I know Matt uh, dove deeply into your book and is very excited to ask some questions about it. But why don't we just go light and fluffy first? Because we can and we can get to know you. Here's the question that I asked our audience, as well as I'm going to ask you, Mark, first. It's this. What did you hoard over shelter in place, the shelter in place part of the pandemic that you still have? I'm guessing there's one thing. What is it? Oh, wow. That's a great question. So I don't think we technically still have it, but we just finished it. So when everything was, you know, tough to find, we could not find Airborne anywhere. So we started ordering it online and it wasn't even like, I'm not even sure it was Airborne. It was like huge (laughs) tubes of something from somewhere. But I was like, okay, we'll take it. We'll get it. It's it's ours. (laughs) Just something as if Airborne was going to knock out the Rona, right? So it was like, okay. But at the time, you're not thinking rationally. You're thinking, I want my Airborne, and nobody's got it. So everybody's hoarding their Airborne. We're going to order our Airborne. uh, And we actually just finished it. So now we got to get probably regular Airborne. Yeah, yeah, that's what we did. I love it. Everything you said, a million percent, because you said you took whatever it was, and you also called it Rona, so you just earned like a thousand points. Good job. You're winning at podcasting right now. (laughs) Matt Krieg, which uh, listener response stood out to you? Well, the one that stood out to me was the one that immediately, I think, also stood out to you, and that it would stand out to me, Oh, was what Kat said, hot chocolate mix. Yeah, I knew you were going to pick that one. Me and hot cocoa, I cannot have my morning coffee without hot cocoa. I'm a lightweight. And when the kids are waking up at five in the morning, thank you, daylight savings time. Mm. I need my hot cocoa and coffee mix. So so that is the thing that, that I was just thrilled to see. And I wish we had stocked up on more of it, but I'm the only one that drinks it. So I guess we didn't need that much. <laughs> 
<laughs> whenever we travel like to fancy places, they're like, oh, would you like some coffee? He's like, you got you any hot, co- hot chocolate? <laughs> like a four-year-old. Is, is that a real drink, like hot cocoa and coffee? Isn't that something? Is it called? Something? I mean, it's like a cappuccino, but just a lazy person's homemade cappuccino. I don't think that's a cappuccino, (laughs) Matt. That's a mocha, but a lazy man. Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, Yeah, mocha. Sorry, when I say cappuccino, I also mean mocha. Labels. (laughs) What are labels? You know. What are labels? Steve O'Dell. Um, Well, I... I just am looking at what Gay had say. Uh, she said Clorox wipes, two partial containers. One drove around with me in the car for months. I took it out recently when I realized I wasn't wiping anything down. True. Yeah. We all gave up, didn't we, at some point? I think so. I didn't really, like, I'm, we're not hoarders. Um, we probably should hold on to things a little bit better. But one thing that started, I think, was buying bottled water, which we yeah. never bought bottled water before. We've got pretty good city water tap you know tap water mm-hmm. and so we always drank that but all of a sudden my wife starts getting these gigantic cases of bottled water the kids are always drinking it i'm going hey we have um a faucet right there that would work fine so anyway so we're not hoarding the bottle uh, the bottled water but we have started getting bottled water yep. as just a matter of course now so yeah aldi's got it cheap i, I feel you on that <laughs> uh Teresa said Yeast and flour. I started stress baking and collecting yeast and types of flour. I ended up with two pounds of yeast and six kinds of flour, all purpose, two different kinds, bread, whole wheat, self-rising, and semolina. Nailed Mm. it. Uh, Important for noodle making. I appreciate a good stress bake. And now I just want to watch Great British Bake Off. Mm. But no. We (laughs) We do. Everything's stressful, and that one's like a vacation for your soul. Mark. We are going to talk about emerging gender identities, but we are going to ease our way in there with something a little bit more serious than our question of the week from last week. And it is this. I believe we have asked you this before, but let's ask it again. Uh, If the gospel is, I am more loved than I imagine, yet more sinful than I believe. When was that gospel first good news for you? And how is it still? You know, I I gave my life to Christ when I was in high school. So but I have to confess when I when this happened I was um, <clears throat> I was on a youth group retreat uh, and they had like a Baptist minister come and speak to us and it was like hellfire and I was it was fire insurance for me I mean I, I grew up in a Christian family but it was like okay I want to make sure I'm set but you know what happened my youth pastor uh, he met with me for the next uh, between the next year and two years like every week we would meet um, before school, like one day a week or something, and we would just study scripture and pray. And he just really discipled me. And I would say that there wasn't like a time, but like over the course of the next year and a half or so, that really uh, came alive for me in a much more meaningful way. The discipleship piece of it was really powerful for me. Mm. Uh, I would say today, um, you know, it's interesting. We, uh, my wife and I lead a home group, and so we're doing we haven't done a home group for several years. We used to do one in Virginia and the church we're a part of asked if we would do one here. And so this is kind of a first time in several years. And it's been really good just to study God's word and follow the sermon from the week before and just really be with a group of Christians. um, uh, Most of whom are navigating some of the issues that we're talking about. And we're just able to, um, just be encouraged by how God's working in people's lives as they just um, 
I don't know, dare to grow closer to him through their through his spirit. And it's just been really uh, powerful to me. So That's awesome. So you are kind of the gender guy, uh, you know, in this conversation. If you guys listening have been following our podcast for any amount of time, maybe you've heard the time we've actually interviewed Dr. Mark Yarhouse before. So maybe you've listened to that. But uh, I'm sure we've referred to his books many times. But we engage this gender conversation in various ways, but this is usually the guy when it comes to psychology and gender and like caring for people well, just because you're like one of the first ones to dive into this space with um, just wisdom and tenderness. So what got you into this conversation and why do you stay in it? Well, I was, uh, I was a research assistant for Stan Jones, at, when I was in graduate school at Wheaton College, and Stan had expertise in this area, and we were study. He wanted to study some particular use of scientific research in some of the church's uh, debates around sexuality, in particular, uh, less so about gender. But and he had asked if I would help him sort of think through some of those things. I had a philosophy degree from Calvin, and um, it just was some of it was kind of thinking log- about the logic between statements about research and the implications for the church's uh, moral debates about certain things. So anyway, so I ended up, uh, he became the provost, which is the senior academic officer at Wheaton, and just didn't have the time and the bandwidth for the invitations he was getting. And so as his research assistant, I would do a lot of that speaking and writing. And um, then I graduated and had to make a decision about what what I was going to do, because I hadn't gone to graduate school to study this. This is, I was interested in a lot of other things. This was not on my radar. I had no interest, honestly, in in the area. Uh, I mean, just kind of a casual interest as any observer, you know, but not like I was going to make it my life's work or anything like that. Um, and then um, I remember going to the American Psychological Association. And I was watching two gay psychologists talk about Christians who were leaving the gay community to go to Christian ministries that they thought were harmful to them. And the one person said to the audience, we are failing our people, by which he meant um, we're failing to um, address the religious and spiritual needs of gay people who leave our community, the family, and they go to um, Christian ministries that we think are harmful to them. And I had just, it was just a paradigm shift for me. I'd never heard somebody in the gay community think that they had more in common with Christians who were gay by virtue of being gay than I would have with those same people by virtue of being a Christian. Hmm. And then I had realized at lunch, I had never heard a pastor say something like that from the pulpit, that like we're failing our people, by which the pastor would mean we're failing to meet needs for identity and community. And people are leaving the faith communities, the Christian community, to go find that in the LGBTQ community. So that was really a big shift for how I was gonna do research, what that was gonna look like for me. But most of my work at that point was on sexual identity. So being gay, lesbian, bisexual. um, But I'd always seen people in my clinical practice who were navigating gender identity, which is different than sexual identity. And so uh, it just was such a small percentage. And I didn't think it would really, I mean, you know, you'd always help families that they maybe had a child who was maybe gender atypical and they were worried, you know, what does this mean for my child? but at the time, the diagnosis would have been like gender identity disorder. And, but it was not 
at the center of any cultural discourse at all. So hmm. I didn't think much of it, honestly, until several years later, um, around a number of historical events, including uh, Caitlin, Ryan, uh, Caitlin Jenner's transition, um, that it really, you know, and Laverne Cox and the transgender tipping point, you know, that Time Magazine published and things like that, that it really had a kind of a more cultural salience that I even thought about um, contributing in any way to like the educated lay person at a church or something like that. That's really when things turned for me. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm really glad that this is a conversation that you have leaned into. Um, and, and for me personally, I know that the, the people I work with regarding gender identity typically happen to come into my office because their parents have asked them or, or, not even necessarily ask, sometimes made them come into my office. And, and inevitably, one of the questions that I get, especially now in our culture where, where a, a non-cisgender identity, um, the identity not aligning with birth sex, is, is much more prevalent, is that the parents will ask, why is this such a big deal now? And one of the things I really appreciated that I read in your book was this idea of the looping effect. And so I wonder if you can if you can give a little more insight into what is the looping effect and and then how does it relate to this gender conversation? Yeah, the, so looping effect comes from Ian Hacking. So I'm not the uh, originator of this idea. I just was applying it to this phenomenon. And he had studied this in uh, in his own profession. He's a, I mean, he's a philosopher, but in a, another area that he did work in years ago. And he applied it more to mental health uh, diagnoses. And he does some things, and like with multiple personality disorder, other different things that he shows this kind of phenomenon or makes a case for the phenomenon. And so the looping effect begins with a classification, like an idea about how we think about somebody. So I you know, would apply that to gender dysphoria, right? And then you have uh, the loop goes to the next thing is the person who's navigating gender identity. If we could be the most descriptive here, they're person navigating gender identity questions. So set aside labels and constructs and things like that. And then um, you have the institutions and specialty clinics that um, used to not be very common, but they're popping up all over the United States and Europe and so on. So you have this kind of uh, the institutions and specialty clinics. And then you have sort of um, what becomes taken for granted realities. This is what's on talk shows and what people are talking about. And of course, everybody knows quality to it. And then you have experts who are the gender specialists who tell us what counts as knowledge and what's the right way to think about things. And then that loops back around to diagnostic classifications that change over time, right? And so you can sort of go back in history and see how gender identity issues were conceptualized uh, many years ago before it even became gender identity disorder, became it gender dysphoria. I suspect eventually it's going to be removed as a diagnostic classification. But um, but the looping, um, here's, here's the main argument that I read in hacking is that when you classify somebody and you use certain words and categories to explain the phenomenon, if you're just a natural object, like a, like a chemical compound is the example he uses, chemical compounds don't interact with their classification. Um, but if you classify people, a humankind, Human beings respond and react to the language and categories you give them, hmm. and they begin to think of themselves differently. 
and they begin to think of even their history of becoming who they are and why this uh, the linguistic categories take great uh, become very salient to them and they have sort of an explanatory framework around them and um, and then that becomes so okay you have a 14 year old right and the 14 year old is interacting with language and categories that their parents never had access to they just didn't have the language for it let alone their grandparents okay and right. you know you think about a church the church is the one one of the few places where we coexist across generations and not only do we miss each other with language and the vernacular on different things but now just what is gender and how do we make sense of the different variations of gender and how do we understand a 14 year old's experience with their exposure to different categories as they make meaning out of their own experience compared to parents or grandparents and it's just kind of a fascinating uh, model for thinking about how these things uh, influence young people and that's not to be critical that's really just an observation like kind of answering the question you're asking, like, how did this come about? How did this become so culturally salient and centralized right now in our in our conversations around sexuality and gender? So there are parents, and it's almost gotten strangely more abrasive, I've noticed, like, when I'll ask a question rhetorically from a stage, like, do you think that people choose this? And it's been funny, like seeing you'd think people would be more acceptant, like, oh, of course not. But instead, I see parents, friends, whoever be like, oh, man, of course people are choosing it. And they allude to this idea of trans trending. How does what you're saying uh, relate to this trans trending? What is that? And how does it relate to this looping effect? Well, I think just, again, if we were to be the most descriptive and um, sort of detached from the conversation for a second, we would, I think, agree that there's been an increase in the number of people coming to either mental health professionals yes. like Matt or to specialty clinics around these issues. And you can just document this empirically. There's just an increase, a pretty significant increase. Yeah, like 5,000% in Europe and It's pretty UK. high, yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> so you have this going on. Now the question is, how do you explain it? Yeah. So there's the data and then there's the theories for it. So trans trending, I think to me, is a little bit of a pushing at the idea that there's this increase in numbers. But when you call something a trend, I don't know that you're always just objectively saying there's numbers. I think you're saying a little bit more about like people being um, infatuated with it or enamored with it and they're sort of drawn to it. So let's let's back up and say, what are the two primary explanations for what's going on. The one explanation is this has always been there. These people have always been there. These variations in gender have always been there. And so um, they just now in a an accepting cultural moment where society is open to their experience, they have the courage to speak their truth. And so this relies on what we call essentialist categories, that these types of people always existed across all cultures and throughout history. Um, but they just now have the courage to speak their truth in a society that will let them. Right. So that's probably my field is a little bit more that way. Uh, I think mental health fields generally gravitate towards that. It's a very intuitively appealing approach. Um, it sort of takes people at their word. It's not very complicated. Um, I think it um, is a little naive. I think it overestimates uh, its own explanation and doesn't really account for a lot of things. I like the way that young people 
come up with language. We give a number of examples, but you know, you're not going to find an eight-year-old who says, you know, I'm gender non-binary, as though they came across they they came up with that. Like they they're obviously using language and categories that adults are using and they're exposed to. Now, that's not to be critical of that. That's just to say, come on, that's I don't know that that's just them speaking their truth. There might be something else going on. So the other explanation that's very popular right now is the idea of a social contagion. And this is likening being transgender to more like a virus that's catching. And so you have people who are hanging out with other people who are transgender. And so they must be exposed to the concept and they never thought of themselves that way, but now they do think about themselves that way. And so this came under fire a little bit with um, a pretty well-known article that came out in 2018 by Dr. Lisa Lippman studying, um, again, the empirical phenomenon, but with this explanation. And what about, she called rapid onset gender dysphoria, what about, which we would, more comfortable calling late onset, um, but she was showing how it seems to be compressed in time, but also uh, this increase in numbers and people being with other transgender people, especially among natal females and things like that. So you have all these things going on. Well, I don't use that language. I think it's antagonistic to talk about people's experience that way. But could some of that be True. I mean, some of what I think she's describing could account for some of the percentage increase, just like the other one. I mean, I know people. I've worked with people in their 50s and 60s. They would have loved to be 14 or 15 or 18 right now with their experience of their gender identity, because when they when they experienced it, they thought they were crazy. I remember working with someone who had no idea what this was. He would go into um, medical libraries and just just scour the, the books to find out what was going on. He thought he was schizophrenic. He thought he had psych, psych, it was a psychotic break. So the, and he landed finally on what this was um, to sort of make sense of his gender identity. So yeah, I mean, someone like that, if they were 16, 17 today, they wouldn't have the same kinds of questions that, um, that, that the person had now they're in their 50s or 60s. So I think that there is some truth to what's being said over here, but I don't think it accounts for everything. Mm -hmm. There is some truth to what's being over here, but I don't think it counts for everything, and it's a little antagonistic, okay? Mm -hmm. So the looping effect is really our attempt to explain the phenomenon. I don't know that it does. It's just, you know, what is going on here? And I think the looping effect is closer to accounting to for a higher percentage than either of the other two, even though I don't dismiss either of them out of hand. I think they're they're fair to have on the table. Again, these are just theories, right? We can agree on the data. We're trying to make sense of, you know, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and I, and I feel like kind of that explanation, the looping effect has, at least for me and in my working with, with parents, like that has been a helpful framework to really present um, because it isn't just this, oh, this, this very not nuanced, I guess, approach of, well, it's just a contagion or it's, this is how it's always been. And we're just now finally hearing about it. And it, it kind of rests in the fact that, man, this is a multifaceted thing. There's a lot going on. And really the one person that you can talk to might not necessarily know how to present the information that is really going on internal to themselves. Um, and so I, I just really appreciate the fact that it's not, it's not something that's just going to give you all the pat answers nice and easy. It's something that is, is much more inviting, um, mm -hmm. to, to really explore and, and to, to walk alongside someone. And that's, and that's also another concept that, that you kind of present, you know, in the book, this idea of, 
Well, you recommend taking what you call an integrated, flexible approach to walking alongside someone who is navigating their gender identity. Um, and why do you see, I guess, this integrated, flexible model as, as what is the most helpful posture when walking alongside someone? Yeah, so in my, in my first book on this, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, I introduced the reader to three different lenses through which people see this phenomenon, and including the data that we talk about, the, the people we you know, things like that. And I revisit that in this book. And the three lenses are integrity, disability, and diversity. And so just briefly, the integrity lens tends to focus on the integrity of male-female differences intended by God at creation, so much more of an emphasis on Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Uh, and that has implications for pastoral care, for counsel, for a lot of different things. But that group tends to think about this in a little bit more moral categories. So when someone adopts an, a cross-sex or other, sex, uh, other gender identity, they're doing something that's wrong. And so it has moral implications. Um, the disability lens tends to think of this more like... Um, there's variations that occur in nature. And for the vast majority of people, their experience of gender identity corresponds with their birth sex, uh, if you think of that in terms of chromosomes and gonads and so on. But um, for a percentage of people, there's a lack of fit, lack of congruence. And that's a variation that you might expect over X number of cases. And so um, it's not imbued with moral significance. It's just, okay, that's a variation. and. Um, Christians drawn to that tend to be drawn to that, and they say, well, why do those variations occur? And they tend to say it's because of the fall. So it's not that they don't believe in Genesis 1 and 2, but they also bring Genesis 3 more to the foreground in thinking about how the fall could touch sexuality and gender. And it's not like the integrity folks don't believe that the fall happened, but they bring Genesis 1 and 2 more to the foreground. So there's just differences there. Then the third lens is diversity, which says these variations are... Um, evidence of, a, of an emerging culture that we should be celebrating. So being transgender and gender diverse and these emerging gender identities, they represent a people group and we should be celebrating them as aspects of uh, the created order that is um, to be celebrated as a culture. And so the idea of it being thought in moral categories or even looked as something like a disability is obviously gonna be offensive and problematic for people in the diversity lens. So anyway, I revisit that. So the integrated flexible posture is integrating the best of those three lenses and accompanying people on the journey as they figure out gender identity and faith questions typically. So what's the best of those three lenses? And I make my, my argument, but you know, even among the three of us, we probably come up with slightly different ways to integrate the best. But I do think a biblically faithful starting point begins with Genesis 1 and 2. And I do think that the stories of creation are meant to be informative. They're not just descriptive. I think they're meant to teach us something about our sexuality and gender. And then I think that the pastoral care that comes from that is often quite lacking. Mm. It's a very limited set of gestures because it's a very limited posture. It's it's relies more on disputing people and trying to correct people. And that only takes you so far in these conversations. Mm. Um, the disability lens brings so much more compassion and empathy to the conversation. And then the diversity lens really brings uh, that longing for identity and community that the other two really don't get at. So I might not agree, 
with the answers from proponents of the diversity lens, the answers about identity and community. But I have to at least tip my hat and say they're trying to address that. And they have in a very compelling way. And the other two lenses could learn from that. So I had a pastor reach out to me this week, and I'm sure you get these every day, like I get them every day, often. Uh, But it was, I have a student who is going to, like an older teen student, who is going to transition, just announced that they're going to transition to from male to female. What should I do? And you already hear, you hear the panic, you hear the like, what you just kind of alluded to is, is there an argument? I don't think this person wants to argue, but it's kind of, it's so dear in headlights, which you're trying to fight against that. But I guess, what's your response to someone like that? Like to this pastor in particular? Um, Because I'm with you in the long game, but how do you, what would you say to someone? What do you say when you are asked that? You know, there's so much context that's left out sometimes in those types of questions. But, you know, I think to myself um, a little bit as a, like I used to, I was an elder in a church I was in in Virginia, and I have been in more of a role where I'm shepherding people, which is different than being a psychologist or a therapist. It's a different set of responsibilities. So let's say you have somebody who's a member of the church and they've, they're sitting under the sort of spiritual leadership of the faith community. This varies, I know, by denomination and how people conceptualize all this, but that's why it's complicated. So I'm thinking to myself first, you know, I, I, mean, I mean to be a resource to people in my congregation who are navigating complex issues in their lives. And here's somebody who's announcing to me a decision and never felt like they could come to me in the process. So I'm going to do a little bit of stepping back and say, I don't know that the ministry approach we're taking to shepherding people is meeting people where they are. Because when you have to announce a kind of a final decision of a, uh, I was facing this, you know, fork in the road that was like a crisis for me, maybe existentially, spiritually, psychologically. And I was facing this and I didn't bring anybody in from the church or at least from the elders and shepherding and pastors. I'd want to look at, I want to, rather than look at them and say, can we make sure that you do the right thing? I'm going to look at myself and say, what, where are we not connecting in ministry the people don't even see us as people that could that could be a part of that conversation, even if it was a multidisciplinary treatment team that was all involved, maybe an endocrinologist, right? Maybe a therapist, maybe a gender specialist, uh, maybe all these different people are in place, but nobody who represented the faith tradition that they're also saying is really, really important to me, because that's what we're finding in our other research. We've begun doing some research of um, Christian college students who are navigating these issues. And their faith matters to them. So I think sometimes you assume that people navigating these issues couldn't be Christians or they wouldn't be people who take their faith seriously. That's just it's, it's, it's the same mistake the church made around same sex sexuality. Right. We thought that gay people couldn't possibly be people of faith. Well, come on. That's, that's crazy talk. So we're, we're, we're running the risk of making the same mistake here. Mm. I think, I mean, that's, that's really helpful to, to have that first reaction, like be a little bit of self-reflection of, okay, how did, how did we get to the point where we are not a resource to this person? But um, I mean, to, to kind of answer the, the question maybe that the pastor is asking, because I mean, that, that, that type of announcement is, is typically something that has a lot of thought behind it. And, and so as, as a pastor or as someone who's walking alongside, I mean, if someone came into my counseling office and said, I'm transitioning, you know, if that was first session, I, I 
feel like my natural response as a therapist would be like, okay, well, how, how did you come to that conclusion? Like, how did you get from, from the, the initial wrestling, you know, the initial maybe identification that, that there is something gendered going on here to, to the point of now, this is the course that I'm going to take. I'd want to really understand that. And, and, you know, for whatever pastor wrote that to you, Lori, mm-hmm. I, I think that asking, maybe doing some follow-up and asking like, hey, what, you know, we haven't been there for this journey. If you're willing to let me in on some of the, some of the process, I'd, I'd love to be kind of that resource that Mark was talking about and to try and just take that first step of trying to understand like, hey, how did, how did you get to this point of making this big, you know, announcement maybe in front of the church or however it happened? Yeah, that's a great point, Matt. I think one of the, we use a narrative approach a lot. So we'll think of the person's life as a book with many chapters, and we'll invite them to talk with us about the chapters that preceded this moment where you're telling me that this is what you're doing. So if they were to title this chapter, like right now, what this is, you know, it might be Turning Point or, you know, New Hope or, you know, whatever it would be. But what were the chapters that preceded this announcement? or you, you, you letting me know what you're planning to do. Because that gives you a lot more sense of what the journey's been like. And to your point, most people don't just, you know, two weeks ago there was one thing and now it's this, and it um, was never given much thought. Now I've seen a range of depth of thought to some of the things people ask about mm-hmm. and sense of urgency and timing and pacing and a lot of things could be a part of a discussion in shepherding people through some of these challenging questions. And many people actually don't use like medical interventions. They use other ways to manage the dysphoria that they feel. Um, so part of what I'd also want to do is, and I, this is probably more of a psychologist than, a, than an elder talking, but more thinking through a little bit of my experience with what a range of people have done in similar circumstances, because I've seen Christians of all ages make different decisions at, a, at this point. And um, sometimes when someone's 17, they haven't maybe seen the variety of ways in which people navigate this space. They may be online and know some people in the way they've done it, but there may be sort of a prevailing narrative for the way that you ought to do this. And sometimes I like to thicken the plot a little bit with a couple of other ways in which I've seen people do it. and there aren't a lot of examples of people of faith doing it. And so that adds a whole nother layer of complexity. And then again, for the elder, for the pastor, you know, to, to have more of an idea of ways in which people have done this would probably be really helpful as they try to shepherd this person. Mm. So I've walked ooh, for a few years uh, with my friend, Kat. She's been on here, shared her story. She, when I met her, she was, uh, didn't go by she and uh, it was more they and cat and was about to transition to male and was thinking about proposing to her girlfriend again common knowledge she's shared this publicly um and she reached out to me and asked said i am so tired of what the world says i am i want to know what god says will you walk with me and i said sure <laughs> and i knew i didn't know everything about gender but I did know the gospel and I did know, know that um, I had a sense of God's best and, and I didn't have like a prescription of, of where she needed to go. And now a series of years later, she does go uh, by she, which I never pushed that on her. You guys can again hear her story, um, but is more and more aligning. Like 
it copes with the gender dysphoria in unique ways. Um, which again, I never pushed, never did any clothes thing, but like talked about clothes or anything. I just asked questions and walked with her and really helped her know her belovedness. Like that's what we sought was Jesus together. And it was bananas to watch God, like actually meet with her and how like God, his order of operations is so different from ours. We see gender dysphoria and he sees someone who needs to have shame removed and know my love. So I say all that to say uh, you talk about a theology of suffering and taking the body seriously. And I remember in one of our first like two hour conversations, like hours and hours of talking and me just mostly listening. I said, you know, Kat, I wonder if the same God who walks with me through my version of suffering, which yours is different, I just wonder if the same God could walk with you through yours. And it just blew her mind. Like, just like, could God help me suffer well with gender dysphoria? I took it seriously. I wasn't trying to change anything. But it was super powerful for her to think, could he? And I didn't say he can, duh, here's a verse. It was, could he? So she thought about it. So I guess I'm just curious, what, how do you unpack that? I didn't get to that part in your book, just that, um taking the body seriously and, and developing that theology of suffering. Yeah. So we, we really don't want to, I mean, I think sometimes I get some criticism for as though I'm not taking the body seriously or as though anybody who, who watches someone transition is not taking the body seriously. And I do think Christians have a very strong theology. I was going to say theology of the body, but of course, Pope John Paul II. So, I mean, I think we do have a very the- strong claim on our um, being physical beings. And it, got, it was part of God's creational intent. So you don't want to skim past the significance of God's creational intent as, as bodies, as, um, and that the body is a, is a good thing. And uh, it's not that the world that's physical around us is inferior to the spiritual around us. Like these things are we don't want to create a dualism in which one is the source of evil and one is the source of good and you know, that kind of thing. So you want to be careful with that. But I also, I remember meeting with this couple where the wife was suffering from gender dysphoria. We often you know, are open to, in our consultations talking about spiritual things with people. But at the end of the day, we're not part of their faith community. And they have to go back to their faith community and navigate this within that. So we were asking and encouraging them to, to take some of the um, really important, good questions they had around spiritual issues to some of the leaders within their faith community that they could trust with their story. And she looked at her husband and she looked at me and she said, we tried that. Mm. And she said, we told our pastor about this. And he said, pick up your cross and follow Christ. Mm. Now, she looked back at her husband, looked back at me and said, I have no idea what he meant by that. <laughs> and she said, I don't, then she paused. She says, I don't think he knows what he meant by that. Oh, like snap. the pastor, <laughs> like it was like, it was just, you know, here's a faithful Christian trying to follow Christ with this enduring reality, right? It's not going to resolve on its own. It's probably going to be part of her life now for uh, this side of eternity anyway. And so here she is asking people and they, they give these little cliches and little memes out to people as though it's pastoral care. Mm. Now, the other side, the other thing that happens sometimes 
is, um, so I want to call that out. That's not ministry. But the other thing that happens is people dispute people. They said, you need to get your theology right on gender and on transitioning and on all of these things before you can walk with Christ. Mm. And I think that's not ministry either. Like exactly what you did, Lori, was what I would encourage people to do. You walk with people and you say to them that God wants to go deeper with you and to know you better. He loves you right now. as you are right, right now. now. And you, you disciple and deepen their walk with Christ because you want that relationship through the Holy Spirit to inform a lot of the future decisions that that person is going to be making. Yep. But a lot of times people in ministry do the exact opposite. And so we have this section where we say, you can get theology right and just really bungle the ministry itself because you're yeah. not shepherding people. So anyway, I could preach on that for a little bit, but I'm not. Well, and you are preaching. I it, We have got to be willing to really walk with people and to take our controlling hands off of them. Like there's so many times I'd, I'd watch Kat like making these bad decisions and I was like, shut your mouth, shut your mouth, shut your mouth. Lori, like ask, ask the spirit. I had to ask God and he'd be like, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. I'm like, how about now? And then finally he'd be like, you can say, how are you? <laughs> No verses, no praying. So, and now like she's shared her story, but I didn't know that when I, like she shared her story with Preston and all that. I didn't know she was going to do that on day one, two, three, 300. I did not know that. I wasn't like, she's going to be my disciple. Now I was like, well, Lord, she's your kid. So here we go. So it's so, so stinking good. I should say that I don't know that how her story is today is going to be the story that other people are going to experience. That's right. right. So That's the other right. thing is there's this quite a range of ways in which people navigate this yep. space. Yep. And I, and I want to make room for people to figure that out, be on that journey yep. um, and not feel like I'm somehow um, jettisoning the gospel or right. scripture or anything like that. And I, sometimes people seem to think that if you kind of leave things a bit open and you invite God to speak into this and you walk with people as they are trying to manage something that's really painful for them, yeah. that somehow you're, um, you're, you're failing at getting it right. And I, I think that would be a mistake. And I, I'd really want, I know it's hard. It's, 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 ministry is going to be really, really messy here. Really messy. Uh, messier than a lot of other ministry things. But I, I think it's the direction that we should be thinking about here. You are preaching Matt's language. Are you an Enneagram 9, perchance? Bingo. <laughs> My word. Every stinking one of you are all nine. You're 9-1, I'm guessing, too. <laughs> I love you guys so much. I'm just like, there they are again, willing to be in the messy and hang out with everyone and love them right where they are. I love 9-1s. I got two of them in this room and another one on the line. Okay. <laughs> Matt Creek, I think you got one more question. Well, I was... Just something that you had, you had said in the midst of kind of talking with the, the story with this pastor who said, pick up your cross mm-hmm. and follow Christ and, and how the, the, the person, the wife in, in that story said, she didn't know how to do that. She didn't know what that meant. And she didn't know that the pastor knew what that meant. And just kind of this theology of suffering, how, how can we help someone suffer well if we don't first understand something about their suffering? Not that we're going to get everything we can't, you know, Proverbs, no, no heart fully knows your joy. Lori, you could quote this better than no, I could. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one can ever fully share in its joy. That one. Yep. 
15, 19. Yeah, if, if we don't understand someone's suffering, how can we ever hope to help them suffer well? Mm. And so I don't know that that's a question, but... Well, there's a couple pieces to that, I think, Matt. So one of it is, I don't know that most people... Why most people do not know what this feels like. So I ask almost everybody that we consult with if they could describe it to me or draw it for me and help me understand it. How would I explain it to someone who's never experienced this gender dysphoria that you experience? And I've shared a number of examples in my writing and speaking about what people have shared with me. But so there's that piece of it. Like you don't really understand what this is like for me. And then, um, most people think of suffering as something you alleviate, and it's very difficult to alleviate this. This mm-hmm. can ebb and flow in a person's life. It can be very painful, uh, sometimes life-threateningly so, other times uh, much more manageable. And so there's not, that's why I said there's not going to be one resolution of this, because not everybody can do what the next person did to manage their dysphoria. And so I'm sometimes criticized for not taking some things off the table, but the reality is those things are on the table, whether I, I mean, it's not really my role to take things off the table. Um, so you, you end up kind of walking with people in the suffering, but I suspect people's capacity to do that has a lot to do with their own experience with suffering. Um, mm-hmm. I, there's things that I've dealt with in my life that um, like my wife and I have str- struggled with infertility when we were first starting our mm-hmm. family this is probably one of the most painful things that we went through as a couple. Yeah. And we, we have told our story. And uh, so I'm not talking about this out of, out of school, but um, you know, it's, it's uh, led to some very um, wonderful things. When I think of our children, our adopted children, and just what our life looks like today, I can't imagine a family that's different than the family that we have. And I love it, mm. but I couldn't have started there in the middle of the suffering that we had. Right. And very few people wanted to walk with us through that in our church. Very few people wanted to walk. In fact, we found out there was kind of this underground network of people who had similar experiences. We left the Bible study we were in where nobody had this experience. And we joined a Bible study by invitation by people, many of whom had this part of their their life. Mm. And they shared with us and there was just instant credibility. And nobody tried to you know, give us a verse and here's the answer and, you know, pick up your cross. <laughs> None of that. There was just sitting with us in this great hardship. So I would trust them with a future pain, but I don't know that I could trust other people in the church with enduring pain, right? And uh, and so I think that's a big part of shepherding people well, is not just getting theology right, knowing the scriptures, um, getting doctrine down, it's actually, do you know how to walk with people with, who suffer? And I'm talking about Snapped. enduring reality, mm-hmm. ongoing pain. And if you haven't experienced deep suffering, it's going to be harder for you. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you couldn't do it, but you should be very humble and careful in walking in that space when someone else is before you in great turmoil, because that's exactly what it feels like to them. And if you start coming in with those shortcuts, you are not doing ministry. You are um, pacifying that person in your mind so you can go do something else. And that's not ministry. So, so don't do it or get out of it. Amen. Ooh, snap. Yeah, Mark, you brought it just now. <laughs> that could be, we could just start another podcast right now is like, how can we suffer well with others if we don't know how to suffer well with ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, man, thank you so much. I like you. 
let's have you back on again. <laughs> hey, let's do it. All right, guys, you have got to go check out his book, Emerging Gender Identities. And as you do that, why don't you follow me on the old socials so that you can engage our question of the week for next week. It's kind of a more serious one. I keep mixing it up back forth, back forth. Most influential book on your life besides the Bible. I think we've done this one, but I just want to hear some more. What, what's like impacting you guys? You are welcome to say our book or Emerging Gender Identities, but I really want to know. I have I think I've got a couple. One of them might even be a fiction book. Hit me up on the Instagram where this is where I'm the most active, Lori Krieg or Facebook, Twitter. Thanks again to Dr. Mark Yarhouse and for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast. We will see you next week.